Now, here's a question for you. What adjectives would you use to describe Jesus? Or maybe another way to say is what names would you use for Jesus? Would you say things like teacher, friend, healer, miracle worker, savior? There's a story of a burglar that broke into a home and was looking around. He had heard a very soft voice say, Jesus is watching you. Thinking that it was just his imagination, he continued to search the home. And again, he heard the voice say, Jesus is watching you. He turned around with his flashlight and saw a parrot in a cage. And so he asked the parrot, hey, what's your name? And the parrot responded, Moses. And the burglar said, what kind of people would name their parrot Moses? And the parrot said, the same kind of people that would name their pit bull Jesus. Now, let's be clear. I don't personally want to encounter a pit bull named Jesus, even though I do want to have encounters with Jesus, the risen Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. But who Jesus is for us individually and corporately as the church is very important. Without the resurrected Jesus, we have to understand there is no power in the church. Let's also say this one and make this as clear as we can. Without the resurrected Jesus, there is no church. The novelist and humorist Flannery O'Connor wrote many engaging pieces. She had great insight and very subtle humor. O'Connor loved to poke fun at life and culture using deceptively backward Southern characters. Her writing made the incredibly strong point that all of life, even the most awkward, is infused with the grace of God. In one of her novels entitled Wise Blood, she writes about Hazel Motes, a preacher of the church without Christ. And this is what Hazel Motes says. Well, I preach at the church without Christ. I'm a member and a preacher of that very church. It's the church where the blind don't see, the lame don't walk, and where what's dead stays that way. Ask me about the church, and I'll tell you that it's the church that the blood of Jesus don't foul with redemption. So the church without Christ, you know, that may strike us as both humorous and bizarre, and that was O'Connor's intention. But Hazel Moat's understanding of the Gospels, where the blind don't see, the lame don't walk, and what's dead stays that way, 
may not be too far from what we experience in our lives. I mean, here we are, my friends. We are two full weeks after Easter. I mean, we have the Easter colors here and the Easter flowers. The Easter themes continue and the hymns that we sing. And our scripture, of course, comes from Easter day, the very first day of resurrection. Again, this Easter day, according to the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus is walking along the Emmaus Road. He's talking to the disciples, but they don't recognize him. Then they arrive at the outpost of Emmaus, and it's there that they sit down to eat. And Jesus takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And it is at that point that their eyes are now opened and that they recognize this is Jesus. But then the scripture tells us that Jesus vanished from their sight. So these two disciples do what? They go back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples that they had encountered the risen Christ. My friends, on that very first Easter morning, all of the disciples were, let's be honest, trying to be the church without Christ. In our passage for this day, they're wandering aimlessly. They were not seen very well. They couldn't even recognize their beloved Savior when he was right there in their midst. And take note of their numerous descriptions in this passage. What does it say? They were startled and terrified. And Jesus said to them, why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your heart? Startled, terrified, frightened, full of doubt. Now, if we go back to the Greek words, they're actually much more vivid. And they help us understand the state of mind that the disciples were in. Because you can translate that sincerely troubled, emotional turmoil, cognitive confusion, and hearts full of conflict and despair. You know what? I would venture to say that you and I know a bit about this state. Even though we are just two weeks removed from Easter, we can quickly fall into feeling sincerely troubled. We can feel that emotional turmoil and even kind of cognitive confusion. And before we realize it, we find ourselves in the church without Christ, where the blind don't see, the lame don't walk, and where what's dead stays that way. My friends, we see this in married couples whose answer to conflict is to verbally and emotionally abuse each other. And so we have to ask the question, where is Jesus? Or when the body gets so frail and the voice gets weak and the doctor says things like, there's nothing more that, than we can do. Let's just keep them comfortable. Everyone knows that time is running short. And we ask, where is Jesus? 
When the challenges continue, when all you can think about is the pain and the illness and the loss, you can't sleep. It's moments like those that it is so easy for us to wonder, where is Jesus? And every day we have increasing worries in our world. There's violence and shootings. The world can seem so chaotic, and so we ask, where is Jesus in our world? We can so easily find ourselves in a life without Christ, where the blind don't see, the lame don't walk, and what's dead stays that way. However, Luke, the gospel writer, wants to lead us in the way of faith, a way of life. Luke wants to lead us toward the kingdom of God. Luke reminds us that Jesus, the risen Christ, shows up and ushers the disciples and us from fear and doubt towards confidence and perceptive faith. Jesus, the risen, ushers us from wondering and confusion and emotional turmoil to peace and to purpose. Jesus, the risen, shows up and speaks with love and compassion to our hearts. Jesus says to his disciples that first Easter morning, why are you so startled? Why do doubts arise? Come on, guys, it's really me. Look at my hands, look at my feet. I'm no ghost, no disembodied spirit. I'm the risen Christ. Touch me. I mean, a ghost does not have flesh and bone. And then even to make the point more emphatic, what does the risen Jesus do? He actually asks for something to eat. And they give him some broiled fish. I don't know, my friends. If I've been dead for three days, I don't think I want to eat broiled fish. I'm just saying. But here's what's so interesting, right? Now, you know, the Gospel of Luke is filled with all kinds of stories of Jesus going to banquets and dining, eating with tax collectors and sinners, but it never talks about him eating anything specifically. This is the only verse in scripture where it says that Jesus actually ate something and then names what it is that he ate. But this is also done here to make a point. The real physical Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is truly and completely in their midst. It also points to the new life of the disciples because the disciples have purpose, hosting others, serving others, sharing the risen Christ in hospitality, feeding the risen Christ sheep, and moving forward in the name of Jesus, moving toward the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, the risen Christ, encourages them further with his teaching in verse 44. 
Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And the whole message, Jesus says, is really about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You know, when Jesus says that, this is my ministry. This is what it's about. It's about repentance and forgiveness of sins. Do we hear it and do we take it seriously? We make our religion, we make Christianity about so much else that it is distracting and that it takes people and us away from the risen Christ, that when we start focusing on the law and saying, you must do this, here's point number one, you do this and you'll be a Christian. You do this and you'll be a Christian. You do this and Jesus will love you. You do this. That is not what I see in the Bible. I do not read that anywhere. What I read is I want to have a relationship with you. I am God and I love you and I made you and then I came down here to earth to show you how much I love you. And the thing is, my people, even back in the Old Testament, we're always so concerned about right action and right thinking that they forgot about that which is most important and that is right relationship. And so they stopped focusing on truly loving each other and they started building fences, building walls that kept other people out. And Jesus says, no, my ministry is about forgiveness because you've sinned. I want to draw you close to me so that you can really know me and know my heart and know my love. And then the repentance part is to say, turn from what you have been doing. Stop doing it and follow. Do the 180. You're going this way. Stop. Turn around and come this way. I mean, Jesus offers us life and love and grace and relationship. Relationship that makes every other relationship that we have meaningful, full of power and love and purpose. But we got to get it right, right? <laughs> you know, when I was in seminary, I had a friend who was a student from Germany. Now, I had some pretty intelligent seminary professors. And the Germans really started the whole academic movement, even in the early 1900s. Whether it was in the sciences, whether it was in um, psychology, whether it was in, you, you, you name it, even in understanding the Bible and religion. And so some of the great minds, theological minds, were these early Germans. And if you wanted to be a professor, you wanted to live the world of academia, not only did you, you know, do things like learn Hebrew 
in Greek, so you could read the Bible in its original text. You also learned Latin, and you learned German. So my friend would actually write his papers. He, he spoke very good English, and he'd write his papers in German, and he would turn them in, and my professors would grade his papers in German and give it back to him. And I was always so amazed at that. And I was like, I think I'm probably the dumbest person here. But as the dumbest person in seminary, I remember one time, none of us had a TV in our rooms. And every once in a while, I'd love to get a break. And of course, I'm always a big baseball fan. So I remember being down and watching baseball. And my German friend came in and he said, you know, we don't have baseball in Germany. Can you tell me the rules? <laughs> have you ever tried to explain baseball to somebody? This was my first experience, and I was horrible at it. You know, trying to talk about a strike and a ball and a plate. and I mean, holy moly, that was crazy. But here's the problem that I have. I, was, I started with the particulars. I started with just the individual. Let me tell you all the rules and my friend couldn't follow. And so I was just sitting there and I was in great frustration and my German friend was in great frustration. And then another friend came in and we kinda, he said, what are you guys doing? And we said, well, I'm trying to explain baseball. And he said, oh, well, that's really silly because it's just an easy game where you try to hit the ball, move around the bases and score uh, runs at home plate once you make it all the way around. And, and that's how you do it. And then all of a sudden, the light bulb came on for my friend. And he understood exactly what he was talking about. And I'm like, why did I not start there? So I want to ask you another question. <laughs> if someone asked you to describe your faith, what would you do? Would you start with the Ten Commandments and start going through all the list of rules that you got to follow? Would you start with the particulars like I had done? Or would you say, well, at the heart of Christianity is this. There's a God who loves you, who made you, who wants to be in relationship with you, who came to this earth to show you that God is love. Now, when you say that, right, well, there's some rules there. Love always has boundaries because there are things that we do that are not loving. And so therefore you've got to have a boundary for it. And that's what these rules or laws or commandments or whatever you want to call them happen. But you know what? So many times we put the cart before the horse. The thing that needs to be leading is the love of Jesus Christ. And we want to do these things to show our love for Christ. And that's what really is the heart of this. And you know, the truth is, this even goes back to the beginning of Luke's gospel. Because Luke has this said very, stated very well, right? Jesus says, my ministry is about forgiveness and repentance. In the beginning of Luke's gospel, you find this guy named John the Baptist. And what is he doing? He too is preaching Baptism, in the sense of forgiveness and repentance. 
So the Gospel of Luke really ends up coming full circle. The Gospel of Luke has this message, I want you to know about Jesus Christ. I want you to know about the love of Christ, that your sins are forgiven. All the laws of Moses, all the prophets, all the Psalms are told to turn us away from our way and to turn us in a repentant way towards God and God's way and God's forgiveness. Serving the risen Christ in the kingdom of God is not about doing what we want to do in this world. It is doing what God would have us to do in this world. It's not about serving God. It is always about, I mean, it's not about serving self. It's always about serving God. It is about being released from oppression and living in God's love and grace. It is about forgiveness of sins. It is about all the things that Jesus did in his life's work, healing the sick, helping the hurting. Jesus taught us to reorder our lives. If we have two coats, what are you supposed to do? Give one of them away. If you are wronged, you're supposed to forgive. This is what Jesus teaches over and over and over again. And then on Easter morning, while the risen Christ is standing among his disciples, Jesus says in verse 47, this is to be proclaimed to the world. We are now given that charge, a charge that Jesus has given us to carry on loving, healing, justice-seeking, peace-building, and resurrection, life-giving work to the world. In verse 48, is very powerful. Jesus says, you are the witnesses to these things. We are moving toward the reign of God. And you know what? It looks like light, not darkness. It looks like life and not death. It looks like community and caring, not separation and abandonment. And you are witnesses. You are to embody this message. And it's supposed to be embodied with how you live. God is always at work. Good news is always at work because God never leaves us. God wins over tragedy. God wins over heartache. God even wins over death. And you are witnesses to all of these things. Live into it. Live into your resurrection faith. And may it count as joy on your countenance when people see you. And that, my friends, is the Easter message. You know, I pray that we call Jesus all those different things. Teacher, friend, healer, savior. But the most important thing is I, I pray that we call Jesus risen. Because I stand before you today to say we are not the church without Christ. We are the church with the risen Christ. And if Christ truly rose from the dead, it is the most important thing that has ever happened in history. And it changes everything. Yes. 
We are the church of the risen Christ. And now we have a job because we are witnesses to these things. We have to live in to the forgiveness and the repentance that Jesus taught and then to take it into a hurting world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.